Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season seven of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season, we are discussing the Bosnian War of the 1990s. This is episode 7 4 Byzantines and Ottomans. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. The Ottomans defeat the European Crusaders at Nicopol in 1396. The Ottoman Empire plunges into civil war when Sultan Bayezid dies in 1402. Mehmed I wins the civil war and emerges as the new Ottoman Sultan. Mehmed dies in 1421 and is succeeded by his son, Murad II. And with that, let's discuss the Ottoman conquest of Constantinople. Constantinople As we've mentioned throughout this series, the Byzantine Empire was hardly an empire. By the mid-1400s, it consisted of the city of Constantinople, parts of Thrace, and a few Greek islands in the Aegean Sea. Constantinople was one of the few major cities in the Balkans at this time. Even before the empire's decline, most Byzantine cities and towns were fairly small. As the largest city in the region and the center of Orthodox Christianity, Constantinople dominated local affairs. Still suffering from the aftermath of the Black Plague, Constantinople's population, about 50,000, was much smaller than other major cities of the time. For example, Cairo, Egypt was the largest Muslim city of this era and its population was just under 400,000. It was not until the Ottoman era, when it became known as Istanbul, that the city became a major metropolis. In fact, within 200 years of its conquest, Istanbul would become the largest city in the world. Much of the Byzantine downfall can be attributed to its lack of natural resources. The only reason Constantinople lasted as long as it did was due to its strategic geography. As the connection between Asia and Europe, Constantinople charged taxes on the multitude of goods passing through and across the Bosporus Strait. The Byzantine taxed everything they could. They taxed imports coming into Constantinople and exports going out. They taxed manufactured goods and agricultural goods. They taxed all of the land and property within its domain. But, no matter how many taxes the Byzantine Empire levied, it was never enough. For one thing, the Byzantine Empire needed to maintain its military. But most of its tax revenue was spent on supporting the lavish lifestyles of the Byzantine royalty. That is why, in spite of all these taxes, Byzantine infrastructure declined along with the empire. The Roman Empire was once known for its excellent roads and logistics. But this was no longer the case. The roads inside Constantinople were still in decent shape. But outside the city, they were a hopeless, decaying mess. The roads were so bad, most people preferred to travel by sea, even for short trips. The Byzantines had also lost control of the sea. 
Even with its dominant position as a commercial and maritime hub, Constantinople relied on the Venetians and the Genoese for shipping. For now, it was the Italians who controlled the sea. The Crusade of Varna While the Byzantines were collapsing, the Ottomans were expanding. Having survived the chaos of the Ottoman interregnum, Sultan Murad II began sending raids deeper and deeper into Romania. In 1440, Vladislav III, King of Poland, also became the King of Hungary. Only 16 years old at the time, the young king was concerned about the continuous Ottoman expansion into Europe. King Vladislav was not alone. Several other European powers were worried about the same thing. This resulted in Pope Eugene IV calling for yet another crusade against the Ottomans in 1443. This time, hardly any Western European powers joined in. This was going to be an Eastern European crusade. Hungary, Wallachia, and Bulgarian rebels joined, as did Serbia, Croatia, and Bosnia. The only Western European states to join the crusade was Burgundy and Venice. All told, a crusader army of 40,000 soldiers converged on Nish in southeastern Serbia. The crusaders quickly captured the fortress in Nish and defeated three small Ottoman forces sent to relieve the garrison. From there, the crusaders went east to Zlatica in Ottoman Bulgaria. This time, Sultan Murad II led his troops into battle. He defeated the crusaders who fled further east towards Hungary. Murad sent a small detachment after them, but it was beaten by the crusaders. Finally, the sultan and the crusaders stopped fighting and negotiated a peace agreement. Sultan Murad II agreed to re-establish Serbia as an independent buffer state rather than an Ottoman vassal. He also agreed to pay war damages while Hungary agreed to stay north of the Danube River. With the peace treaty settled, Sultan Murad II traveled to Anatolia to deal with rival Turkish Beyliks. When that was taken care of, there was finally peace in both Europe and Anatolia. At 40 years of age, the Sultan had been fighting for nearly half his life. He was tired of warfare and politics. Having just buried one of his sons, he wanted to focus on Islam and the afterlife. In August 1444, Murad II abdicated the throne in favor of his 12-year-old son, Mehmed II. By choosing his successor while he was still alive, he hoped to avoid the chaos that resulted from Sultan Bayezid's capture and death. The Europeans, however, did not want peace. The peace treaty with the Ottomans was supposed to be for 10 years. But barely a year into the treaty, King Vladislav reneged and resumed his crusade against the Ottomans. Sultan Mehmed II, who was only 13 years old, begged his father to lead the fight against the crusaders. Some reports state the Janissaries and state bureaucrats forced him to ask his father to return. Whatever actually happened, Murad II reluctantly came out of retirement and took over again as the Ottoman Sultan. Meanwhile, the Crusaders headed east for the Black Sea, where they hoped to link up with the Venetian navy. 
they finally settled in the seaside town of Varna in eastern Bulgaria. Murad II led the Ottoman forces after them, finally confronting the crusaders at Varna. With the Ottomans in front of them and the sea to their backs, the crusaders had nowhere else to run and no choice but to fight. A ferocious battle ensued with high casualties on both sides. King Vladislav III led a charge into the Janissary ranks hoping to cut through them and get to the Sultan. But the Janissaries, renowned for their discipline, held fast and repulsed the charge. Vladislav was killed in the fighting and his troops lost morale. The crusader momentum fell apart and the The crusader momentum fell apart and the Ottomans closed in. The result was a massacre. Almost the entire crusader army was destroyed. Once again, the Ottomans were victorious, and most Europeans, having grown tired of losing to them, would not attempt any new crusades for a while. This gave the Ottomans time to prepare for the real prize. Constantinople. Yet another crusade. The Hungarians, however, were not yet ready to stop fighting. In 1448, four years after the crusade of Varna, the great Hungarian general, John Hunyadi, led yet another crusade against the Ottomans. The Hungarians were supported by the Wallachians of Romania and the Albanians. The Serbs decided to sit this one out. The Ottomans intercepted this new crusader army in southern Serbia in what became known as the Second Battle of Kosovo. Once again, the Ottomans were victorious. Then the Ottomans launched a punitive campaign against those nations that had participated in the crusade. But things did not go well for the Ottomans, especially in Wallachia. Wallachia, in modern-day Romania, was ruled by the warlord Vlad Dracul, also known as Vlad the Impaler. Despite their superior numbers, the Ottomans had a difficult time with this sadistic prince of Wallachia. They eventually defeated Vlad, but not before suffering several setbacks. In 1451, Murad II died and his son, Mehmed II, became sultan again. Though still a young man, he was only 19 years old, he had learned a lot since his abdication five years earlier. One of the most important things he learned was the significance of Constantinople. That lone Christian outpost, surrounded by Muslim Ottoman territory, was a constant thorn in their side. Mehmed witnessed the ancient city serve as a naval base for the Crusaders during the Battle of Varna. He was determined to remove this threat once and for all. Closing in on Constantinople The Ottomans were now entrenched in the Balkans. Multiple Crusades, civil wars, and Dracula had all failed to dislodge their hold in the Balkans. Having won this land, the Ottomans were determined to hold on to it. They rewarded their best warriors, Muslim and Christian, with large tracts of land to manage. This land technically belonged to the Sultan, and he could take it back whenever he wanted. But the Ottoman warlords ran it like their own personal fiefdoms, growing wealthy and powerful. This arrangement made them attentive and loyal to the Sultan. 
Sultan Mehmed II would need these warriors in his upcoming fight against Constantinople. But he needed a reason, or at least an excuse, to declare war on the city which was currently an Ottoman vassal. That excuse came shortly after Mehmed II became Sultan. Byzantine Emperor Constantine XI made the foolish mistake of contacting Prince Orhan, an Ottoman rival claimant to the throne, promising to support him against Mehmed. When Sultan Mehmed II found out, he terminated the agreement between him and the Byzantines and prepared for war. The Sultan began by coming to terms with Serbia and Wallachia, turning them into vassals again. This ensured they did not enter the fight on the side of the Byzantines. He also sent soldiers into the few towns in Bulgaria the Byzantines still controlled. His soldiers removed the Byzantine tax collectors and replaced them with Ottoman tax collectors. And then he began building a giant fortress called Rumeli Hisar. Construction of Rumeli Hisar began in 1451 on unoccupied Byzantine land on the shores of the Bosporus Strait. Emperor Constantine complained, stating Mehmed was stealing his lands. The Sultan brushed him off and stated the Emperor controlled nothing outside his walls. He then expanded the Ottoman navy to protect Rumeli Hisar during its construction. Emperor Constantine knew the giant castle being built outside his walls could only mean trouble. Dejected and frightened, he begged Western Europe for help. But the Europeans were tired of losing to the Ottomans and felt there was no way to save Constantinople. They saw no reason to waste life and treasure on a lost cause. The Venetians and the Genoese were merchants and eager to maintain good business relations with the Ottomans. The Knights' Hospitallers were too weak to offer any significant assistance. Most European monarchs sent words of encouragement, but not much else. Even Emperor Constantine's own vassals either refused or were unable to help. In a last-ditch effort to delay the inevitable, the Byzantine Emperor sent two emissaries to Sultan Mehmed II in the hopes of opening peace talks. The Sultan ordered both of them killed. Ottoman Preparations Sultan Mehmed II devoted everything to the conquest of Constantinople. He engrossed himself in the study of modern battle tactics, siege weaponry, and a wonderful substance from the Far East called gunpowder. Throughout the empire, Ottoman armorers were busy making swords, muskets, armor, shields, and various other weapons. The sultan hired a Jewish-Hungarian cannon maker who used to work for the Byzantines. The Hungarian was charged with designing and building a cannon that could break through Constantinople's walls. By November 1452, the cannon was ready. The fortress, Rumeli Hisar, was completed within a year. Large enough to hold over 400 soldiers, the Ottomans used it to enforce a toll on ships passing through the Bosporus. The giant cannon was hoisted atop Rumeli Hisar. When a Venetian ship tried to slip through the Bosporus without paying the toll, the Ottomans fired on them and scored a direct hit. The Venetian ship sunk to the bottom. Mehmed was so impressed with the cannon, he immediately ordered a second one built. 
This one wound up on top of Rumela Hisar as well. Byzantine Preparations When Sultan Mehmed II killed his emissaries, Emperor Constantine XI knew there was no way to avoid war. Killing emissaries was a diplomatic taboo and a very emphatic declaration of war. The emperor ordered all citizens living outside the city to move within its walls. Food, grain, and livestock were also moved into the city. Byzantine ships set sail to purchase as much food and weapons as possible. Engineers worked frantically day and night strengthening and improving the city's defenses. As they made their preparations, Constantinople received assistance from two unlikely places. When the Ottomans sunk that ship that tried to run the toll, Venice reluctantly declared war. Though they would have preferred to stay out of it, they could not let that attack go unanswered. Venice began sending ships and troops to support Constantinople. The second offer came from the Catholic Church. The Vatican agreed to assist in the defense of Constantinople, but encouraged the Orthodox Christians to reunite with them. Despite protests from his subjects, Emperor Constantine XI agreed, but wanted to discuss the details after dealing with the Ottomans. Giovanni Gustiniani was a Genoese warlord who ruled over the island of Chios in the Aegean Sea, just off the coast of Anatolia. An accomplished warrior, he volunteered to defend Constantinople. He and the 700 soldiers under his command were tasked with defending the city's walls. Constantinople was built on a peninsula and surrounded by water on three sides. The Sea of Marmara to the south, the Bosporus Strait to the east, and the Golden Horn to the north. The Golden Horn is a river inlet that flowed into the Bosporus separating Constantinople on one side and Galata on the other. The Byzantines placed a chain across the Golden Horn to protect the northern part of the city from Ottoman naval attacks. The Siege and Fall of Constantinople The first Ottoman troops arrived outside Constantinople on April 1, 1453. Four days later, Sultan Mehmed arrived and began directing preparations for the siege. All told, the Ottomans had about 100,000 troops, 60 cannons, and 126 ships. Their cannons were actually bombards, the medieval ancestor of true cannons. Though they were very inaccurate, they were effective at breaking through city defenses. On the other side, the Byzantines had about 38,000 troops, 15 cannons, and 26 ships. Even though the Ottomans had more ships, Constantinople's Venetian and Genoese allies had better ships and more experience in naval warfare. Giovanni Gustiniani was responsible for the walls. Emperor Constantine XI and his personal guard held back as a reserve unit. On April 6, 1453, the Ottoman bombards opened fire on Constantinople, blasting its walls with gigantic round stones. Despite its ferocity, this initial barrage was ineffective. The cannons and the missiles were so large, it took nearly three hours to reload them. 
This gave the Byzantines enough time to repair whatever damage they caused. The next day, Ottoman infantry attacked the walls. Hundreds of scaling ladders were hastily thrown against the walls as the soldiers raced up to meet the city's defenders. But the Byzantines were prepared. They used stones, arrows, spears, pikes, boiling water, and oil to repel the attackers. The Ottomans did manage to take out a few Byzantine cannons, but for the most part, they were unsuccessful in these attacks and lost countless soldiers for very little gain. The Byzantines attempted to go on the offensive as well. On April 8th and April 9th, Byzantine troops rode out to face the Ottomans, but it was a hopeless effort. Outnumbered, they could do very little damage before having to race back within the city. Frustrated, the Ottomans began a steady, coordinated barrage of cannon fire on the city walls. Day and night, the cannons boomed. Meanwhile, the Ottomans attempted several night attacks on the walls, but were always repelled by the Byzantines. The Ottomans weren't having much luck on the sea either. Their ships could not get past the chain to enter the Golden Horn. And on April 20th, four additional Venetian ships arrived, further bolstering the city's naval defenses. The breakthrough finally came on April 22nd. Ottoman engineers built a road of split logs across Galata. This allowed them to transport their ships across land and bypass the chain protecting the Golden Horn. A week later, the Byzantine navy was surprised to see dozens of Ottoman ships suddenly appear from behind them in the Golden Horn. The Byzantine ships swiftly moved forward to intercept them, using Greek fire to set many of them ablaze. But they were hopelessly outnumbered. One by one, the Ottomans destroyed the enemy fire ships. With no other choice, the remaining Byzantine ships retreated to the safety of the city's harbor. Now, the Ottomans controlled the Golden Horn. Hundreds of troops streamed out of the ships and attacked Constantinople's northern walls. Giovanni Gustiniani sent soldiers to protect the north, which weakened his defenses on the main walls. By May 6, the Ottoman bombardment finally began to take its toll. Their cannons broke through the gate of St. Romanus, one of the largest gates in the city. Ottoman troops rushed forward into the breach, and it was all Giovanni could do to beat them back. Five days later, Ottoman cannons destroyed the Caligaria gates in the northeastern section of the city. This was near the Blacone Palace, one of the emperor's many residences. Once again, Ottoman troops surged into the breach. This time, Emperor Constantine led the defense of this section, and once again, the Ottomans were beaten back. But the cracks in the city's defenses were beginning to show, and Sultan Mehmed II knew it. On May 29th, the Sultan ordered a full frontal assault on the city's main walls. His cannons laid down a heavy barrage as Ottoman soldiers attacked all points of the walls. Despite brutal hand-to-hand -hand combat, the Ottoman soldiers could not breach the walls and once again had to fall back. But the cannon fire created yet another breach in the gate of St. Romanus. This time, instead of regular infantry attacking, 3,000 elite Janissary troops rushed forward into the opening. The Janissaries took heavy casualties, but they managed to capture one of the towers on the wall. This gave the Ottomans a crucial toehold. 
Even worse for the Byzantines, Giovanni Gustiniani was injured in this assault and had to be carried away. The Ottomans pressed their advantage. Another 300 Janissaries rushed the wall, and this time, supported by their comrades in the tower, they were successful. Without Giovanni to direct them, the Byzantine defenders could not hold the Ottomans back. Terrified, they abandoned their positions and ran into the city towards the harbor. When the citizens of Constantinople saw the Byzantine soldiers running for their lives, they panicked and did the same. With no one protecting the walls, the Ottomans poured into the city. Emperor Constantine XI was killed during the final assault on the walls. Some say he led a desperate defense after Giovanni's troops fled and was killed in the fighting. Others say he committed suicide when it became clear the city was lost. Still others say he was attacked and killed by a random Ottoman soldier who did not even know who he was. Whatever happened, Emperor Constantine XI was the last Roman emperor. When the Ottomans found his body, Sultan Mehmed II ordered his head cut off and placed on display as proof of the city's conquest. The Sack of Constantinople If you read about the sack of Constantinople on Wikipedia, it gives a very biased, one-sided account of this event. It makes it seem as if the Ottomans were bloodthirsty rapists who enslaved the entire city. Leonard of Caius witnessed the horrible atrocities that followed the fall of Constantinople. The Ottoman invaders pillaged the city, enslaved tens of thousands of people, and raped women and children. Even nuns were subjected to sexual assault by the Ottomans. However, David Nicol gives a very different account in his book, Cross and Crescent in the Balkans, The Ottoman Conquest of Southeastern Europe. Clearly, the ordinary people of Constantinople were treated better by their Ottoman conquerors than their ancestors had been by the Fourth Crusade, back in 1204. Only about 4,000 Greeks were killed in the taking of the city which was very few in the circumstances. Sultan Mehmed II did not want to destroy the city since he planned to make it his new capital. But he did allow his soldiers to pillage the city for one day. Certainly, some Ottoman soldiers committed atrocities while they were pillaging. However, depending on where you get your information, you might get different ideas about how destructive this pillaging was. One thing we know for certain, the Ottomans were very disciplined, and they would have been disciplined in their pillaging as well. The Ottomans methodically moved through the city, securing different neighborhoods and protecting them from looting. However, since Constantinople was a large city, they were not able to protect all of it. Some of the damage was caused by Constantinople's own allies. The Venetians and Genoese looted several neighborhoods to the north as they fled the city for their ships in the Golden Horn. Prince Orhan, Mehmed's rival whom Emperor Constantine had tried to use against the Ottomans, was eventually captured. The unlucky prince tried to escape dressed as a monk but was betrayed by one of his own soldiers. The soldier that betrayed him earned his freedom by pointing out the prince. The prince was immediately executed and his head presented to the sultan. The luxurious Orthodox churches were prime targets for pillaging and looting. They contained statues of religious figures which Muslims deemed idolatrous and forbidden. 
They also contained valuable items such as jewels and ornaments. The statues were destroyed and the valuables were taken. Sultan Mehmed, however, forbade any pillaging of the Hagia Sophia and the Church of the Holy Apostles. These were the two most important churches in Constantinople and he wanted to preserve them. He returned the Church of the Holy Apostles to the Christians of Constantinople virtually untouched. Three years after the conquest of Constantinople, the Orthodox abandoned the Church of the Holy Apostles in favor of the Pamakaristos Church, which became their new headquarters. The Church of the Holy Apostles was demolished in 1461, and the Fatih Masjid now stands in its place. During the pillage of Constantinople, several wealthy citizens had taken refuge in Hagia Sophia. They believed in a prophecy that stated they could not be harmed inside the church. That prophecy was false. A group of Ottoman soldiers broke into the church and captured them. Those who could afford it were ransomed. Those who could not were sold into slavery. The sultan had different plans for Hagia Sophia. He entered the city around noon on May 31, 1453. He went straight to Hagia Sophia, which had been emptied of most of its Christian relics. He prayed Salatul Dhuhr, the noon prayer, then took a tour of the former church, marveling at its magnificent architecture. The next day, the sultan ordered all pillaging to cease and for the troops to return to their camps outside the city. The few remaining Byzantine garrisons surrendered peacefully. It was all over. Just as Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, had predicted over 800 years earlier, the great city of Constantinople had fallen to Islam. In the next episode, we will discuss the Ottoman conquest of Bosnia. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, iPhone, iPad, iPod, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you use Android, Windows, or any non-Apple device, visit patreon.com slash Islamic History. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season one of the Umayyad Caliphate, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. By the way, Ramadan Mubarak. Before we get into the episode, let's briefly recap the previous episode. Previously, we spoke about how Abdul Malik appointed Hajjaj ibn Yusuf as governor of Iraq, which included mostly Kufa and Basra. Once in Iraq, 
Hajjaj ibn Yusuf reignited the war effort against the Khawarij, threatening violence for those men who did not participate or were lackluster in their participation. Eventually, this was used to bolster the ranks of the forces fighting under Muhalab and Ibn Mikhnaf, who were fighting against the Azadika Khawarij in Persia. The Azadika Khawarij attacked Ibn Mikhnaf's forces at night one day, August one night, and eventually killed Ibn Mikhnaf himself. Hajjaj briefly appointed another commander to fight under Muhalab, but that didn't work out. And Hajjaj eventually just appointed Muhalab as uh, the commander of the entire force in Persia. Meanwhile, there was another Khawarij rebellion brewing starting up in northern Iraq, led by a man named Saleh ibn Musarrih. Saleh and one of his followers, uh, probably his second-in-command, Shabib ibn Yazid, he was from Mosul, Saleh and Shabib and several others, they plotted to kill the caliph, Abdul Malik, during the Hajj. However, Abdul Malik escaped their plot, but now the Umayyads are aware that there was another Khawarij cell operating in Iraq. And with that, let's continue our discussion of these Khawarij in Iraq. So Saleh and his Khawarij, as we mentioned, they were based in what we might consider northern Iraq, the Jazeera region. This is where Turkey or the modern nations of Turkey, Syria, and Iraq come together. Saleh and his Khawarij are plotting to overthrow the Umayyad authority in this region. And they began the rebellion in the month of Safar in 76 AH. The Khawarij fighting under Saleh ibn Musarih, they briefly take over the town of Dara, which is where Saleh was from, which is in, I believe, southern Turkey. And once they had taken over this region, there's actually some question amongst the Khawarij about whether they should massacre the people of the town. Saleh eventually overruled that suggestion, but this goes to show that these Khawarij, even though they may have had some legitimacy in their complaints against the Umayyads and the wrongdoing of the Umayyad authority, these Khawarij were not much better. And this harkens back to, I know some people may disagree with me on saying this, but there was a point of time, I'm sure many of you remember this, in the early 2000s when the United States had gone to war against Iraq. We discussed this, in fact, in much detail in season six of the Islamic History podcast, that there were, were many Muslims, Sunni Muslims, but also some Shiites, but many uh, Muslims who launched really outlandish, gruesome, and brutal attacks against other, other Iraqis. Sometimes Shiites were the victims, but also sometimes Sunnis were the victims. But it doesn't matter. These are very brutal attacks against other people, many of them innocent people, who had nothing to do with with the uh, with the government and all this? It was this brutal. And I remember at least here here in the United States, many Muslims were speculating that these were uh, operations managed by the United States. This was the CIA doing things to to try to undermine Islam and stuff like that. And I'm not saying that's impossible. I I we know we've covered some of the. Um, Sneaky things, for lack of a better phrase, that the CIA have done uh, throughout the years in the podcast. But I'm not going to say that 
people who claim to be Muslim are above such brutality. If the Khawarij from over a thousand years ago, really barely three generations after the death of Prophet Muhammad wasallam, if they're debating about whether to massacre a town full of innocent people, and they were probably willing to do that, and there are going to come some mini stories that we're going to cover where you see their brutality. If they were willing to do that back then, no doubt there are many people willing to do that today. 